All right, good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our uh, study of Christology. We begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Well, in our reading, we are in chapter 5, Christology and the Preaching of Jesus. That's on page 43, the start of that chapter. We had gotten a little ways into this. Again, in the backdrop, the late 20th century claim that Jesus himself never claims to be God or God's son or divine, etc., etc. And what we've looked at is, in fact, that's false. Jesus, in the first place, calls himself the Son of Man, which certainly bespeaks his humanity just on the surface level, the Son of Man. Obviously, if you're the Son of Man, you're begotten of man, you're born of man. Uh, the human race, that is. And then, uh, but when you look at the technical usage of that, of that phrase in the scriptures, the Son of Man, and, and you go f- seek and, and, and find what that means, it clearly means the Messiah, the divine one, the Son of God. And so then we looked at a number of different texts that show just this, where uh, Jesus with Peter and his confession, for example, you know, who do, who do you say that the Son of Man is? You know, who do people say that the Son of Man is? They give all their answers. Who do you say? And Peter says, you are the Son of the living God. So the Son of Man equals the Son of the living God. And Jesus affirms this. So you have examples like these. Uh, then, likewise, over on page 46, we left off on um, 47. You, you have the ego, I, me statements of Jesus, the I am, I am statements of Jesus, where he's clearly using the language of Exodus 3.14, the, the Septuagintal language there, um, indicating that he is uh, God in human flesh. And we also meditated on this, that at, at his uh, trial and, and crucifixion, specifically at his crucifixion, he's taunted with the words, um, he claimed to be the son of God. So let God deliver him if God delights in him. Uh, probably unwittingly quoting the psalm them, then against themselves. But look, that's the charge that's brought against Jesus is he claimed to be the son of God, and, and indeed he did. Now, we left off on uh, page 47, and let's just start at that first full paragraph. Scare writes, while dogmatically explicit claims to divine sonship are seen as more valuable than Jesus' way of preaching or his personal demeanor, the latter is more likely to reflect Jesus' constant self-understanding. His claim of a special relationship with God by calling him Father was revolutionary. This special filial claim was made more emphatic in that he distinguished his own relationship with God from those of his hearers by referring to their relationship with the words, your father. He never puts himself on the same level as his followers in calling God our father. In the Sermon on the Mount, he is not only obedient to God's will found in the scriptures, but sets himself as their final interpreter and the giver of new revelation. Reference there to Matthew chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. His authority, unlike the prophets to whom the word of the Lord comes, or the scribes whose knowledge is derived from their reading of the sacred scrolls, comes from his own inner being and relationship to the Father. He teaches as one who has authority. All of his teaching derives from an internal, not an external authority, and is introduced in the Gospel of John with a double divine oath of truly, truly, or amen, amen, I say to you. Jesus sets himself up 
as the standard by which men are judged and claims that he himself will be their judge who will appear on the clouds of heaven on the last day. He announces his death and resurrection and determines the value of his death as a ransom for many. What you have here from Dr. Scare is a fine sampling of why it is said he preaches not as the scribes and Pharisees, but as one having authority. Sometimes when we read that, we think that that's merely a, a stylistic thing or a, a manner or demeanor in which he presented himself. That's only partly true. It's the way in which he preaches and proclaims the truth as being the source and authority for that truth. That's, uh, that's what's unique about Christ and stood out even in the mind of his, his contemporaries. I mean, just to give you an imperfect analogy, the, the, the authority of the pastoral office is an authority to preach and speak God's word. So it's a derivative authority. And, and basically everything a faithful pastor says, even if he uses the language of I say unto you or truly, truly or anything like that, it's still, if it has any authority or meaning, it's... Christ's word. It's a derivative authority. Whereas when Christ comes, there's no derivative nature to it at all. He simply speaks, and it is. And in some, in some places does this um, contrary to reason or contrary to the, the typical understanding for his time. Okay, so again, as we're looking at, at this, this theme of Christology and the preaching of Jesus, we see that his mode and method of preaching, his way of speaking, his way of speech and teaching is different and distinct from all others in such a way it it bespeaks an awareness of his status as the Son of God. All right, stop me if you have any questions or comments. Otherwise, we'll simply go on uh, to the next paragraph. At the beginning of the 20th century, Harnack popularized the idea that Jesus had come preaching about God, but not about himself. True, he did preach about God, but this view overlooks the fact that Jesus made himself the object of his own preaching, especially in his parables. He describes himself as the sower of the good seed in the parable of the wheat and the tares. And by clear inference, He is the subject of the parable of the sower and of other parables. He is the only son of the vineyard owner and the son for whom the king gives a wedding feast. The references to himself and his hearers were so clear in his parable preaching that they knew Jesus was claiming to be God's son. And their references to Matthew 21:45 and Matthew 27:63. We're not going to take the time to look those up, but certainly worth your time because the hearers understand, Jesus' contemporaries understand precisely what he's saying, and that his claim is to be God's son. Scare continues: the charge of blasphemy against Jesus was not without foundation as he was correctly understood as putting himself on the same level as God. Reference to John 5.18. And you know, we're going to hit John 5.18, so it, it, might, uh, it might be worth just looking at that, because we're going to hit that again in the next paragraph. I just grabbed my New King James Version on the way out of my office in a rush <laughs> for today's class. I'm already a little bit late, so you'll have to put up with that difference if you're in the ESV. Hopefully not too substantial. John 5:18. Now, let's back up just a little to uh, verse 16, just get a little context here. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. Uh, In this case, the most recent reference is healing a man on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. So right there, you can probably tell from the language, the man just being saved, that's my father and I working. We're doing the same work, and we're doing it on the Sabbath. Verse 18, the next verse, this is the the one quoted by Scare. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, 
but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Okay. So, very plainly understood by his contemporaries. I mean, they understood it so clearly they wanted to murder him for crying out loud. So, we'll return to that in just a moment. But to round out the paragraph then from Scare, others may have made similar claims for themselves in regard to messiahship, but Jesus had demonstrated through his teachings, life, and miracles that such claims were not without foundation. Jesus' messianic claims for himself also included a claim to deity. So, one of the functions of Jesus' miracles, of course, what he's, I mean, what he's doing as the incarnate one is he's enacting redemption. He's enacting his removal of the curse. So the blind see, the lame walk, etc. No doubt about that. And he's giving us a foretaste and a foreshadowing of what's to come in the resurrection of our bodies when all diseases, disabilities, etc., are removed and our bodies are glorified forever. Thanks be to God. Another factor, and maybe even the key fact in terms of Jesus' immediate presentation and teaching to his contemporaries in the first century, is that the miracles corroborate what he's saying. They corroborate that what he's saying comes from God. You see, because if he is saying these things and he's saying that these things come from my father and I, and then he's doing these things and saying these things are coming from my father and I, and they are miracles that no one but God could do, then that ought to be pretty definitive proof, as definitive proof as you could possibly get. I mean, how would you, how would you demonstrate something in any more plain way than, look, God backs this because through me, you know, and I'm by my own divinity, am going to do these things. You know, and these these are not Benny Hinn miracles. You know, these are these are people who are lame, uh, blind, disabled in their communities for years, for decades. Some for their entire life. Some are trans so transformed by the healing they're barely recognizable to the community that has known them. Uh, so these are, you know, these are these are definitive, and they also are under the scrutiny of the authorities. They're they're brought before uh, the Jewish councils, and the Jewish councils have no ability to say, but to say, yeah, he, this is him, and he was healed. So. Uh, all of this then bespeaking the miracles, bespeaking um, his divinity, the, they backing up his words, which are clear about his divinity, all of this paints a picture that Christ understood exactly who he was. And certainly he comes to reveal his father to us, but he all, the content of his preaching is also he himself. The center of virtually all of the parables is Jesus himself. I mean, really even in something like the prodigal son, Jesus is the character of the Father. It's not wrong to see God the Father there. Um, you know, to see Jesus is to see the Father. But truth be told, he's the center of that parable. He's the, he's the Father. And as the church fathers would have it, he's also the fattened calf that's slain and eaten at the, at the party, the substance of the rejoicing. He's both. All right, well, uh, if you don't have any thoughts, we'll continue on to the next paragraph move ever closer toward finishing this chapter. <clears throat> the question of whether his hearers accepted his claims is not the point of discussion. What is the point of discussion is that his claims to deity are evident in his teaching and were recognized as such by both his followers and opponents. Dogmatic theology does itself a disservice when it fails to find these claims in his ordinary preaching and rushes too quickly to the apostolic reflections about him. Valuable and indispensable as they are for dogmatic theology. 
John's Gospel is more likely to provide explicit explanations of the implicit claims of Jesus for his, de- for his deity. When Jesus said that, quote, My Father is working still, and I am working, end quote, his, re- his opponents responded that by calling God his Father, he was making himself equal with him. The text we just read. All men are to honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. And by not honoring the Son, they fail to honor the Father. Now that's John 5.23, and since I still have it open, uh, I'll read that to you. So this is right after the people say, um, not only did he break the Sabbath, but he's also making himself equal to God, claiming that God is his Father. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Amen, amen, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does. And he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. Here's the key. That all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So, package deal. You can't have the Father without the Son. You can't have the Son without the Father. Although the inclination there at that time is clearly to try to have God the Father without the Son. So, again, as Scare says, all men are to honor the Son even as they honor the Father. And by not honoring the Son, they fail to honor the Father. His, Jesus, claim to being one with the Father, John 10.30, and you remember that, I think, I and the Father are one, makes him liable in the Jews' eyes to a charge of blasphemy because he made himself God and the Son of God. This special claim to divine sonship cannot be dismissed as a unique understanding of John's gospel since it appears in Matthew. Quote, All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Matthew eleven twenty seven. The complete identification of Jesus with God did not have to wait for the post-resurrection or post-apostolic period, but was part of the record of his pre-resurrection preaching, as it has come down to us in the apostolic writings. When St. Paul speaks of Jesus as the Son of God and as the pre-existent Son sent by God into the world, he was only furthering a teaching originating with Jesus and was not introducing a novel thought. Colossians 2.9 represents Paul's loftiest teachings on the deity of Jesus. In him dwells the fullness of the deity in bodily form. The passage is a bone of contention between Lutherans and Reformed. Lutherans hold that all of the very Godhead himself became flesh in Jesus. Apart from this debate, the Greek word for fullness, pleroma, speaks of the completeness of the Godhead as evident in Jesus. This is not to deny that a fuller explication of his deity, especially in relationship to the Father, would not come until the early church councils of Nicaea, 325 A.D., Constantinople, 381 A.D., and especially Chalcedon, 451 A.D., the 16th century Lutheran confessions, especially in their confrontation with the Reformed, understood their position as a restatement of these councils. But this Christology, for them as for Luther, 
began with the preaching of Jesus himself. All right, there ends the chapter. So hopefully you're convinced now that Jesus himself not only had a self-awareness of his divinity, but then also taught his divinity, proclaimed his divinity, and in fact, for, on the basis of this very teaching, was crucified as a blasphemer and was mocked. This man said that he is the Son of God. Yes, I'm happy to. I've got to repeat it. Um, okay. You might want not want to repeat it. So what does this do when evangelicals and the such will pray sometimes to Father God, uh, yeah. Holy Spirit, or Jesus, and they separate this out, and it just it grinds you wrong when you hear it. Yes. I'm not sure why, but it just does... That's what it does to me. Yes. So if I could hone in on one part of your question for the sake of our online audience, our stream and recording. The practice among some American Christians praying to Father God is a major problem. It's a major problem. In the first place, the scriptures don't ever speak that way of God. There's not a single verse that talks about Father God. God the Father. It's as different as saying God is love versus love is God. God is your Father, Father God are actually saying two different things. The title Father God ends up destroying one's Trinitarian theology. Now, of course, they don't mean it this way. It's a felicitous inconsistency. But if you really press that point of Father God, Son God, Spirit God? I mean, you've got three gods. You've got three gods. You've got, a, you've got a bizarre way of speaking, not following the pattern of sound doctrine handed down to us, not following the pattern of sound doctrine for 2,000 years where no Christian speaks this way. But then, yes, when you actually draw out its implications, um, you botch the trinity. You botch the trinity. So that's, that's probably the reason why your antennas go up uh, when you hear the, the Father God talk. I, it's also sh just schmaltzy, if that's the right word. That's really what it is. It's just sort of this, this faux intimacy that's trying to be expressed, uh, Father God. So um, that, that too like, is to be precluded. Like you're praying to Father God or Holy Spirit God as if they have a different responsibility or a different in other words, if I'm going to pray for, for this, I would go to that God or, or Jesus over here who would, mm. would handle something else. And you would know. Mm. I you see. You would be able to discern it. That's how it impacts me. I see. Yeah. Yeah. Well, kind of an extension of that is a sort of strange kind of modalism where God the Father is good for these things and the Son good for these things and the Spirit good for these things. Right. Yeah, to be clear, we have examples in Scripture, and there's nothing wrong with addressing uh, God in the first person of the Trinity as Father. Obviously, that's the predominant way. Even when Jesus is asked how to pray, that's the way he directs us. But there's certainly nothing wrong with addressing Jesus in prayer or in addressing the Holy Spirit with prayer. You know, nothing wrong with this in, in our our hymnody is an example of all of this. Our, hymn is, our hymns are just prayers set to, set to music. You know, everything from Lord Jesus, think on me, that's a prayer, to come Holy Ghost, Creator, bless, that's a prayer. So nothing wrong with praying, but, but I would say that, that this is recognized even in the prayers of the church, certainly in the scriptures, that the emphasis is on prayer to the Father. And I think too much can be made of the prepositions here, but... We pray to the Father through the Son, you know, by, empowered by, driven by, given to by the Holy Spirit. Uh, so that's really the economy of how the Trinity works. You know, our prayers are, are actually God-breathed uh, words inspired by the Holy Spirit as we speak to God and, and repeat back to Him His words and His truth and His teaching about ourselves. I mean, anything apart from that is, is our creation and is flawed and, and faulted. So, yes, uh, thank you for those reflections. I mean, to be clear, we pray to one God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.
Okay. So as we move into chapter six, we're going to look at what Scare calls the implications of the personal union, the offices of Christ, and the communication of attributes. Now, let's clarify this. What we said from the very beginning, what we've seen from the earliest controversies in the church regarding Christology all the way through 2,000 years of history up into the present, the arguments are always about whether or not he's true God, true man, or one person. That's it. It doesn't get any more exciting than one of those three errors. It can get quite complex and technical and controversial, to be sure, but it always boils down to the, the orthodox side, the biblical side, is always trying to just assert and affirm these, two, these three truths over and against error. So when we talk about the personal union, we're talking about Christ as true God, true man, united personally, in personal union. The two natures remain distinct, they're not confused, but they interpenetrate one another such that we don't have two persons in Christ, but one person. You know, if you hold the two, if you hold the two natures too distinct, you end up with two persons. Okay. So they have to interpenetrate one another. Um, of course, if, if then you allow that interpenetration to blur the lines between the divine and human natures, then you end up with a Eutychianism, and you end up with a Christ who is neither God nor man. Perhaps, a, perhaps some sort of Hercules-type character, right? A demigod. I'm trying to think of my daughter's movie, that Moana, who the demigod is in that one. I can't remember. It's got some Hawaiian name. Anyway, I'll have to, I have to bring that up to speed for the young people. Maui, that's who it is. Maui. And he fights a giant crab. <clears throat> okay. Theology by Disney. Not a good idea <laughs> in general. All right, so that's what we're talking about when we're looking at the personal union. And then as a result of this, this chapter has two parts. We're going to look at the offices of Christ, and then we're going to look at the communication of attributes. The offices of Christ are easy, fun, delightful. Uh, the communication of attributes, quite a bit more complex, technical, and I think the key there with the communication of attributes is to realize, because we, we use some really technical language there, and it can feel, especially if you're, if you're not accustomed to these dialogues, it can feel quite far removed from Scripture. It can feel quite cold and scientific. Um, and we just simply have to realize that, no, it goes back to these very visceral truths of, God, of, of Christ being true God, true man, and one person. And even though we've got some technical language and some technical debate going on there, that's really what's at stake. And, and it's not, uh, it's not this, this kind of cold, antiseptic type of thing. Okay, well, let's jump into uh, chapter 6, page 50, where first we have a quotation from the Lutheran Confessions, Formula of Concord, Solid Declaration. Here's the quote. Thus, Christ is our mediator, redeemer, king, high priest, head shepherd, and so forth. Not only according to one nature only, either the divine or the human, but according to both natures, as we presented this matter previously. So according to both natures, the one person of Christ is mediator. Is God our mediator? Yes. Is man our mediator? Yes. The one person of Christ is our mediator. Same then with redeemer, same then with king, same with high priest, same with head shepherd, etc. So we're not going to allow any kind of breakdown here where we say, well, according to his divine nature, he's these things, or according to his human nature, he's one of these things. Um, that, would, that would have you end up having two Christs. Okay? One, one, one of Christ is our mediator and one part of Christ isn't. You've got two Christs there. All right, so that's, uh, that's our foundation here. That's our, our beginning quote. Now for scare. The threefold distinction of the offices of Christ as prophet, 
priest and king. So very common. You've probably heard this before. It's a wonderful thing to keep in mind. Nothing wrong with it at all. The threefold distinction of the offices of Christ as prophet, priest, and king has not been without difficulty in the history of Lutheran theology. Those opposing this distinction call attention to its origin with John Calvin in his Institutes of the Christian Religion. Calvin arrived at this conclusion from the interpretation of the word Messiah or Christ as the anointed one, that is, the one on whom oil was poured. Now quoting him, For we know that under the law, prophets as well as priests and kings were anointed with holy oil. Calvin recognized the difficulty in this threefold understanding of Christ or Messiah as the anointed one because the term in the Old Testament was used only to describe the kingly office. While priests were anointed with oil, it cannot be demonstrated that the term Messiah was ever applied to this office. In the matter of the prophetic office, Calvin had to revert to Isaiah 61 verses 1 through 2 in which the Messiah is anointed by the Spirit as a proclaimer of the gospel. Prophets were sometimes inaugurated into their office by the laying on of hands, but not with oil. Lutheran theologians have been divided on the use of the threefold distinction. John Gerhard adopted it, and Gerhard's a very big figure in Lutheranism, of course. I, I mean, if you really look at, at the substantive Orthodox Lutheran fathers, many people look at the three greats as being Martin Luther, Martin Chemnitz, and John Gerhardt. Not to say that we don't have other wonderful theologians that did wonderful things. Melanchthon, of course, went wishy-washy at the end, but Melanchthon's writings are very good, um, those that we've retained. Um, obviously, you have C.F.W. Walther and, and some folks like that. Uh, but, yeah, when you look at L Lutheranism, these are really the three giants, Luther, Chemnitz, and Gerhard. So, John Gerhard adopted it, while John Quenstead, he's a, a, a later Lutheran theologian of, of good report, um, he regarded it as unessential and combined the priestly and prophetic offices. Francis Pieper, again, he's kind of the major dogmatician of the 20th century in the Lutheran Church, is aware of Quenstead's reservations, but finds the threefold distinction in offices useful for describing the work of Christ. Its origin with Calvin does not automatically render it useless for Lutheran dogmatics, especially as a convenient teaching device. In fact, Pieper calls attention to Eusebius, a 4th century church father, who said that Christ, quote, alone is the high priest of the whole world. He alone the king of the whole creation. He alone the supreme prophet of his father among all the prophets. So if you're paying attention there, in Eusebius you have prophet, priest, and king in the 4th century. On the other hand, the threefold distinction is, as Quenstead long ago pointed out, unessential. The works of Christ can be discussed under other categories. All right, so there you see the, the helpfulness and the limits of the prophet, priest, and king motif. I mean, what would be the dangers of, of just saying he's prophet, priest, and king? Well, I mean, is he then also not mediator or shepherd or door, you know, etc. He's, no, he's these things in a particular or peculiar way. No, you don't find anything like that. Um, he certainly is prophet, priest, and king. Do you base your argument that he's prophet, priest, and king in the way that Calvin did because he's an anointed one and a Messiah, therefore he's a prophet, priest, and king? No, that's a bad argument because biblically you can't find evidence of the priests by and large or the prophets at all being anointed with oil. So that, that argument does, doesn't hold water. But is there anything wrong with referring to Christ as prophet, priest, and king? No. Is there anything wrong with doing a sermon series on that or something? No. It's fine. It's great. Um, it's, it goes back to the fourth, as early as the fourth century, this threefold thing. All right. Scare continues. It cannot be proven that the threefold distinction is a necessary conclusion derived from the words for Messiah or Christ, taken respectively from the Hebrew and Greek words for the anointed one, as Calvin argued. 
Well, the Hebrew and Greek derivatives for the anointed one do not require the threefold office of prophet, priest, and king. The distinction is not without merit on scriptural as well as confessional grounds, since it has become a common device not only for dogmatics, but also in catechetics to present Christ's work. For example, the formula of Concord, one of our documents out of the uh, Lutheran Confessions, in the citation at the head of this section, refers to Jesus as king and priest. Biblical citations can be garnered to demonstrate the general viability of the distinction. Werner Ehlert grudgingly accedes to the distinction, but correctly points out that these offices cannot be transferred from the Old to the New Testament in such a way so as to preserve the continuing validity of the theocratic context of ancient Israel. In other words, what goes wrong if you drive, if you take prophet, priest, and king and, and push it forward too much? Then since Christ is the Old Testament prophet, all, you know, his followers or his clergy ought to be Old Testament prophets. Or since he is the priest, then we ought to continue with the sacrifices or something like this, you might argue. Uh, and then the, the pastoral office ought to be the, the priestly office, uh, Levitical style or something. Of course, the whole book of Hebrews would be contrary to this. Um, you might then also, more dangerous, and this is probably what Ehlert really has in mind with the theocratic state, if Christ is king, then you simply collapse the left and right-hand kingdoms and say Christ is in charge of all of it, thus the church is in charge of all of it, you see. So that's where prophet, priest, and king would go wrong if you see it as, as Jesus holds these Old Testament offices and thus these Old Testament offices themselves go forward into the New Testament. That would be an error. Okay. Ehlert's concern, Scare continues, is answered in Matthew 12. Here the evangelist brings together three sayings of Jesus suggesting that these offices do in some way belong together, but making the point in each pericope that Jesus assumes and expands each office. In Matthew 12, 5, Jesus says that he is greater than the temple. Uh, of course, if you've got a temple, you've got a priest, so thus the priest is in parentheses. And Scare will flesh this out for us in a minute. But you have Jesus saying that he's greater than the temple in 12.5. In Matthew 12.41, he says that he is greater than Jonah, Jonah being the prophet. And in Matthew 12.42, he says that he is greater than Solomon. And of course, Solomon's a king. So then you have him effectively saying in Matthew chapter 12 that he's greater than the priest, he's greater than the prophet, he's greater than the king. Not a bad argument, as we will see laid out for us. So, uh, page 52, what, what Scare is going to do for us now is uh, he's going to take us through uh, the New Testament evidence, or at least some of it, for the kingly office, then the priestly office, and then the prophetic office. So that's going to be the, the role, um, the organization, uh, through page 55. In the strict sense of the word, Christ or Messiah suggests the kingly office of Jesus. Because again, Christ means anointed one, and the kings of Israel were anointed. I mean, from the very first king, Saul, even, and then when Saul was deposed before David even took over, David was anointed, and on it goes down the kingly line. So to be an anointed one in the first place, just most foundationally, is, is to be a king. In the strict sense of the word, Christ or Messiah suggests the kingly office of Jesus and is derived from the Old Testament practice of placing kings in office through the pouring of oil on their heads. Israel's promised deliverer was understood as a king and called the anointed one. Psalm 2.2, for example. To say that Jesus was the Christ was to recognize him as Israel's king. And there too you can perhaps see the, some of the confusion on the part of Jesus' contemporaries who saw him as an earthly king coming to overthrow the Romans, coming to, to bring back the theocratic state manifest, the glory of Israel. They couldn't help but see it otherwise. 
They did not understand that this was going to take place through death, resurrection, and the resurrection of all flesh. So, so Jesus even weeps as on his way to Jerusalem because they know not what makes for their peace. They know not that his kingship is going to be manifested in his crucifixion, then his resurrection, and setting all things right. Scare continues, this theme of kingship is, of the three, perhaps the most prominent in the New Testament, since Christ, synonymous with king, is the title most frequently attached to the name of Jesus. Matthew, as well as Mark, in the first verse of his gospel, uses the phrase, Jesus Christ. The Old Testament character who prefigures Jesus' kingship is King David. Christ is called the Son of David in the title of Matthew, uh, and that's chapter 1, verse 1. In other words, Matthew's whole gospel begins and is framed with Jesus as the son of David, as the, as the king. Scare continues, and given this designation elsewhere by the blind men, Matthew 9, 27, the Canaanite woman, Matthew 5, 22, the blind men at Jericho, Matthew chapter 20, and the crowds on his entry into Jerusalem that I was just referring to, Matthew 21. So in other words, all throughout Matthew 21, or excuse me, all throughout Matthew, he is called the son of David. The identification between the titles Christ and son of David is made by Jesus himself. Jesus has already been acknowledged as the son of David by the crowds at his entry into Jerusalem. And the implication in David's calling his son Lord is that Jesus is greater than David. Though Jesus never in so many words claims that he is greater than David, this is clearly his intention in his response to the Pharisees' claim that, he was, that, he, that his plucking grain on the Sabbath is illegal. He mentions how David ate the bread of the presence, an act allowed only for the priests. As one scholar has so admirably put it, the appeal to the example of David there has the force. If David had the right to set aside a legal requirement, I have much more. Also supporting the idea of Jesus as king is his genealogy in Matthew. Listed here are progenitors of kings, uh, kings and descendants of kings, in which listing David is the most prominent inasmuch as he is mentioned five times. Like David, his father, he is born in Bethlehem and enters Jerusalem to establish his rule. What is striking is that Jesus compares himself as king, not with David, but with David's son. Something greater than Solomon is here. Jesus, of course, says this, Matthew 12, 42. Solomon represented the height of Israel's splendor and became the pattern of the Messiah, God's final eschatological king. The Messiah who is born to David's house is given the Solomonic name, Prince of Peace, as Solomon is derived from the Hebrew word for peace, Shalom. He rules from the throne of his father David over a peaceful kingdom, but is greater than Solomon, for as the promise of Isaiah 7.14 makes clear, he is Emmanuel, God with us. All right, so what Dr. Scare is giving us here is a really rich treatment, and for those of you listening online without the book, it's replete with scriptural references, so many that I just had to omit them because otherwise it's too clunky to, to read and you wouldn't appreciate it. But this is, uh, this is a tour de force here of how Christ is um, to be understood, particularly in Matthew's Gospel, as king. And we see his connection with David, uh, we see how Jesus himself argues, in effect, that he's greater than David, and then states explicitly that he is greater than David's son, Solomon. 
uh, greater than Solomon is here. And then next, uh, this, this is a rather obvious point to you probably, but viewed in this, view, viewed in this way, I think it'll shed a, a new light on this phrase. Scare says, this is the top of 53, his message, Jesus' message, preached in parables, is frequently introduced with the phrases, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Okay? So when you're looking at that, like a really helpful thing to do, period, is where you see the kingdom of, put in, just put in as your second reading in your mind, the reign of. The reign of. So the reign of heaven or the reign of God is like this. And there you see that the reign of heaven or the reign of God is embodied in Christ and what he's coming to bring now and not yet fully, but it will indeed be fully this way, you see. So all throughout the scriptures, particularly connected with the parables, you have this language of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. That is all referring to Christ as king. Now Scare continues. Though he was charged with blasphemy before the religious court of the Sanhedrin, he is put to death for claiming to be the king of the Jews. Above his cross is listed the crime for which he was executed, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. Which, of course, is one of many, many ironies uh, in, the, in the passion narrative Especially, we, we pointed out one already where the, where the people end up quoting Psalm 22. You know, he trusts in God, let him deliver him. Not realizing that they're the mockers in 22. Another one just off the top of my head. Remember um, the high priest says, let his blood be upon us and our children. And he means that in the nastiest, evilest way. But of course, how beautiful. I mean, how ironic, how true that his blood, his cleansing life-giving blood would be upon us and our children. There's just so many of these ironies as you go along. And uh, there's, a, there's an irony here, too. Um, when, when Pilate, and he's the one that wants this tacked above Jesus' head, you know, crucifixion is public shame. It's like becoming a public billboard of don't do what this guy did or else this is what you'll get. When Pilate puts up their king of the Jews, I mean, this is a knife in the back of the Jews. This is a stab to their ego. This is, this is you know, look, you think you pushed me into doing this thing I don't want to do. I'm going to flip it all on you. So if you all forget your place or if you all want to have an insurrection, this is what happens to your king. You know, it's a bit like bitterly ironic and kind of brilliant on the part of Pilate to do this you know, king of the Jews. And of course, they rush and say, well, this man said he was king of the Jews. Put that up there. Thus is what I've written is written. It's irony because it, it's meant to be an insult from Pilate to the Jews. It turns out to be this profound spiritual truth that Christ is, in fact, king of the Jews and not the Jews only, but as king of the Jews, king of the whole world. King not only of the chosen people and the chosen nation, but king of the entire earth then. So that's the force and impact of that, of that sign above his head. I think we can get one more paragraph in. Let's look at 53. Uh, Scare continues. Only Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, expressly calls Jesus a priest. But the theme is implicit throughout the New Testament. Well, if all you had was Hebrews, that would be enough. Because, I mean, it's a simplification, but the entire book is the priesthood of Jesus. How he's superior to the Old Testament priesthood. How he's the temple and superior to the Old Temple, etc. So, Hebrews calls Jesus a priest, but the theme is implicit throughout the New Testament wherever Jesus is referred to as a payment or sacrifice for sins. You know, where you have the payment or the sacrifice for sins, where you have the atonement, um, that, kind of, that kind of language, that's temple language. That's priestly language. Again, you don't have a temple with sacrifices without a priest doing the sacrificing, you see. So in, in that language of um, payment, sacrifice, atonement, etc., the implication is that Jesus is the priest. Scare continues, in the Old Testament, only priests could offer sacrifices. In offering himself as a sacrifice for sins, 
Christ assumes the role of both priest and sacrifice. References to Hebrews 7 and 9. So Christ is both priest and sacrifice. Now, I don't think that Scare mentions this. I sure could be wrong. But this is, I don't even know if this is implicit. It strikes me as entirely explicit that in the Lord's Supper, you have precisely this reality. Because in the Lord's Supper, Jesus takes two separate things. He takes the bread and he says, this is my body. And he takes the the cup and he says, this is my blood. The only time blood and body are separated is in a sacrifice. That's it. If it was one whole, I mean, I don't know, you'd have to put the bread in the cup or something and then say, this is me. But, But the fact that they're separated means that not only is this a sacrifice we're eating, but that he is the one doing the sacrifice. He is the one declaring this unto us and giving this to us. And, and so, so he is the priest doing the sacrifice, and of course, what is he giving us? His body and blood himself. So he's the priest and the sacrifice in one. And we're partaking of nothing less than what he as high priest offers to God on the cross, That now is given for us as priests, as the royal priesthood, to eat and drink for the forgiveness of our sins. That to me seems quite explicit. Well, continuing with scare, the regulations for the Old Testament Levitical priesthood provide a rich background for the author of Hebrews to describe Jesus in his dual role of priest and sacrifice. The same biblical author is careful to distinguish Jesus from the Aaronic priesthood by placing him in the order of Melchizedek. All right, so if we're going to say that Jesus is is king, we get that. If we're going to say he's priest, we get that. But we do want to be clear that while there's some parallels and some typology from the Levitical priesthood forward to Christ, in fact, Christ was not a Levite. And in fact, Christ is not a Levitical priest. He, and, and the argument of Hebrews is that his priesthood precedes the Levitical priesthood and is thus greater than the Levitical priesthood. How so? He's a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek shows up all the way back in Genesis, if you remember, as a priest, as the as the prince of peace and the king of peace. And uh, he has, lo and behold, bread and wine, remember? And um, Abraham offers to him a tithe. He's this mysterious priestly figure that, that way predates the law and the Levitical priesthood. And Hebrews makes the point, Jesus is, is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. In fact, the psalm affirms this directly, um, that he is made a priest after the order of Melchizedek. So there's the argument, and there's, there's Christ properly understood then as priest, at least in this preliminary way. So next week, let's pick back up on page 53, uh, that, that last paragraph on page 53, and uh, we will continue to examine Jesus as priest. The Lord be with you.